Welcome everyone to Roger's List. This is the podcast where I am watching every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies with an amazing rotating cast of guest hosts. So settle back in for 60 of the goodest minutes in podcasts. My name is Steve Gunley. My guest today just rode up into the studio on the back of a big white tricycle. Pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> from the Off the Cuff podcast, it's Minimus Maximus. Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? Oh, I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. It's great to be here. We're talking about uh, literally a top 10 favorite movie of mine, uh, one of my very all-time favorite movies ever, Nashville, released July 11th, 1975, directed by Robert Altman and starring Deep Breath, Ronnie Blakely, Henry Gibson, Keith Carradine, uh, Geraldine Chaplin, Lily Tomlin, Michael Murphy, Ned Beatty, Karen Black, Sharon Duvall, Jeff Goldblum, Scott Glenn, and at least a dozen others. Uh, yeah. So many people. This cast is stacked Oh man, I'm excited to talk about this movie. But uh, you, sound, first, you actually sound like the opening credit sequence to oh, this movie. Um, honestly, one of my favorite opening credit sequences oh, ever. Like the KTEL, uh, yeah, the KTEL yeah. ad that's just like so, like discordant and chaotic, and uh, just throwing all these names at you. It's and it's so of, great. Piece of trivia: that image from the opening credit sequence mm -hmm. is the cover of the soundtrack album. Oh, you're kidding me. That's so I, good. I, I own the soundtrack album, so I can tell oh, you that. Oh, man. I, I want to be an owner of this soundtrack album. It's amazing that I'm not. Man, Nashville. Okay, before we get yeah. into that, uh, Max, I wanted to ask you, why did mm -hmm. you want to talk about this film in particular? Uh, because it's also one of my top 10 favorite movies, if not my yes. favorite movie. Yeah. Uh, I first saw it when I was 18. Um, okay. I had seen, like, that year Shortcuts had come out, and I saw Shortcuts with my dad. And my dad's also um, a big movie buff. Oh, cool. And he and so we rented that. He was like, oh, if you like that, you should try Nashville. And um, right. I, I watched that and I just I had never seen a movie like that before. Um, Pulp Fiction was still a couple months away. Mm -hmm. uh, um, <laughs> which, <laughs> That's at which the time I, I, it was the only other thing I had seen like Nashville with all the interlocking stories. You could honestly, uh, yeah, you could draw a line from Nashville yeah. to Pulp Fiction, interestingly. Right. And this was still, let's see, I was 18 in 1994. So this was still five or six years away from uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Who um, was clearly influenced by this movie, you know, by Altman in general, if not this movie specifically. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I I think I'm kind of in a similar thing. Like, I saw this movie for the first time when I was younger, and I, I was like, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this. And it's right. it's so exhilarating the way that this movie just kind of defies categorization. Like, it's, sure. it's, it's difficult to put it in any one box. You can put it in any one of a dozen, but, like, it, it isn't right. quite right, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. it is – it's it's a comedy – Sure. Mm -hmm. It's a drama. It's a it, it's a it's a political screed. It's a musical. It's like all yeah. these different things going on. Yeah, Roger Ebert points that out in his essay. I read the essay to prepare for this. Oh, excellent. I, as did I. That there's over an hour of music, but nobody would call it a musical. That's the thing. Yeah. Even though yeah. we are. See, I mean, I think it's the fact that it's it's performative and not like mm -hmm. diegetic, like breaking into song or something or, right. or like non diegetic rather. Um yeah. Yeah. So it makes it a little difficult. And it's 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 a movie where like not not a lot happens, but so, so much happens at the same time. Right. Like it's not it's it doesn't feel super urgent, but it really brings you into all these different things. And, and yeah, it's, it's more it's more character driven than story driven. Um, yeah. You know. And, and uh, they, they really managed to pull off some amazing mm -hmm. things. Uh, with with just all the with uh, this cast that it's just staggering. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this production, but first I want to talk sure. about Robert Altman because this is the first time we're discussing him on this show. It is not the last. I think he's going to appear on this four more times after this. Uh, okay. I think you could honestly make a claim for maybe five or six more on top of that if uh, if even was guess? hanging around. Yeah, well, yeah. What, what would you guess? Okay, uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. That's on the list. Yep. Um. <clears throat> hmm. Mash? Mash is not on the list. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. There's probably like a super obvious one I'm missing. Um Oh now I'm <clears throat> now I'm doubting myself. Now I'm wondering. <clears throat> okay, so it's it's uh yeah, it's McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which uh, I'm excited to get to. Roger Ebert right. has referred to that as a perfect movie. Okay. Uh 
We have three women, which I've never seen. Oh, right, right, of course, of course. And uh, we have uh, kind of a curveball, Prairie Home Companion. Oh, that is a curveball. Yeah, Prairie yeah. Home Companion. And I think there's one more, and I'm forgetting off the top of my head what it, what it is. But you could also make a claim for, like, the player could go on this list. Shortcuts sure. could go on this list. I would I would vouch for Cookie's Fortune. I think that's a delightful movie. Like, there, there yeah. are movies... Altman was a very interesting filmmaker because he worked mm-hmm. so prolifically. Uh, yeah. We pretty much got an Altman a year between 1970 and 2006. It wasn't always exactly one a Except year. Except for but the sometime... period in the 80s when he made two. That's right. Yeah, he would do two a year. Yeah, which is crazy. So that would make up for the few where he missed a year. Like, no, it's no, no, ins- no, no. There was like a period of, of six or seven years where he only made two movies. Oh, was there? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. It was... Um... He did other stuff, but like uh, O.C. and Stiggs was in there, and I think right. Vincent and Theo. Vincent Theo, yeah, yeah, that yeah. was in there. Um, when was Predator? I'm probably mispronouncing. That was '95. That was the '90s. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, yeah. So in the '80s, he went a little quiet. It says uh, mm-hmm. Aria, uh, O.C. and Stiggs. Oh yeah, he has a segment in Aria. I forgot about Aria. Fool for Love, Secret Honor, Streamers. No, he he worked pretty steadily. Come back to the oh, yeah. Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, Popeye. Right. Yeah, he oh, he Popeye, worked, right. Yeah, he 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 worked pretty steadily, and it's yeah. he has an amazing hit record. Like they're they're not sure. all hits. I think there are some genuinely bad Altman movies that you can you can skip. You know, yeah, which the is Gingerbread Man is pretty bad. Kansas City's not great. No, no, nothing. Doctor T and the Women is garbage. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But like there are movies. O.C. and Stiggs is kind of a mess. I don't um, see. I'm not familiar with that one, but oh, I like the title. Uh, it was his teen college comedy. Oh, fun. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Um, um, either way, like Altman was a really fascinating filmmaker because kind of like Nashville, he defied easy categorization as well. You know, he sure. would work in comedy. He would work in drama. He has a couple of horror thrillers. You know, he's he, right. he works in just kind of whatever he finds interesting and maybe more than any other filmmaker who ever lived this is a bold claim but maybe more than any other filmmaker he loved actors he loves actors he trusts actors he loves working with them he loves letting them unleash their talents and their improv Mm -hmm. he loves to improvise you know uh he really puts a lot of faith in his cast and as a result he has built a huge amount of loyalty among those cast members who come back over and over and over for years and years you know um so a little bit about his history. So uh, he was born in Kansas City in 1925. And when he was 18, he enlisted in the Army Air Forces and he flew more than 50 bomber missions in the Pacific oh. Theater in World War II, which I did not know. And even crazier, his first job after leaving the service in 1946, he was a publicist for a company that did tattoos for dogs, which okay. I, had to, I had to dig into that. It's like they would tattoo like ID numbers onto dogs Huh. Uh, so apparently that wasn't much of a lucrative future because he kind of decided to go into filmmaking and to, to read interviews with him. It was almost like a whim, you know, right. he was living in Southern California after the war and everyone else was getting into the movie industry. And he's just like, all right, that looks fun. Right. So in 1948, he uh, sold a screenplay, uh, to a movie called bodyguard. It was a gangster picture that went to RKO, uh, with Lawrence Tierney. And uh, after that, that led to a career of maybe about five or six years where he was directing industrial education films. Right. So like those little, you know, safety and you things like that. And that's yes. kind of how he cut his teeth and learned how to use a camera. So throughout the 50s and 60s, he was a very in-demand television director. He worked on everything from like Bonanza to Maverick to Peter Gunn, a whole bunch of other mm-hmm. popular action shows of the 60s and 70s. So he made his uh, feature debut in 1957 as a low-budget drama called The Delinquents, which is kind of a minor financial hit, but I don't think anyone really remembers that movie at all. It might even be lost at this point. Um, It really wasn't until his fourth film that his career really took off. That fourth film, of course, was MASH in 1970, which had an incredibly tense uh, shooting schedule because uh, apparently Donald Sutherland and Elliot Gould really did not like him. And we're trying to get him fired multiple times. Uh, <laughs> but after that, that movie became like a massive unexpected hit. It won the Palm d'Or at Cannes. It won five Oscars, was nominated for five Oscars. And of course, it inspired a TV show that would last for 11 seasons and be one of the biggest TV shows of all time. And made Robert Altman's son a millionaire. 
Oh, is that true? Does his son hold the rights? Robert Altman's son wrote was an aspiring songwriter. He wrote "Suicide Is Painless." <gasps> That's right. Yeah, and because and he was pretty Mash young when was he did that, right? in syndication forever, he got you know a residual every time the song played. Oh my god, that makes me think of like Hugh Grant and About a Boy, where he just lives off the residuals of his dad's right. song. I don't know. Deep yeah, cool, but. <laughs> Yeah, so after that, yeah, Alban established himself as one of the most prolific filmmakers of his generation. And he released, yeah. like we said, almost a movie a year for 20-plus for mm -hmm. years. Uh, yeah, not all of them hit, but we do get movies like McCabe and Mrs. Miller and California Split and Three Women and The Player and Shortcuts and Popeye and Gosford Park and A Prairie Home Companion and of the several others that I think are worthy of being included on this list. Sure. Um, yeah, so... The, the distinctive thing about Robert Altman is the dialogue, right? The overlapping right. dialogue, uh, which he had to invent an entirely new sound system to create. Uh, he, he wanted to kind of create the natural rhythm or to recreate the natural rhythm of conversation. And he also liked the idea that the audience members would really need to pay attention and would feel like they're being brought into this world. You right. know, the same way that you kind of like feel the sense of community growing if you're in like a, a, a party or a scene like that. Sure. And that's one of my favorite things about this movie with all the disparate threads and everything. It does feel like it's one big community, like it's the Nashville yeah. community, which, of course, pays off uh, a very potently I in the end. I actually noticed that this time watching it, there's so little exposition. Yeah. I mean, oh, there's, yeah. there's Geraldine Chaplin's character, but she's kind of an unreliable narrator. Um, yeah, you know, she's, there's, there's, a, she's, she's flighty. She's, uh, yeah. she's celebrity obsessed. Yeah. Right. So there, there's so little exposition, but you just, you do kind of get what's going on just from the context of letting the actors improv. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that Alban would give his actors that space. Um, yeah. so Robert Alban, he did die in 2006, shortly after completing his final film, a Prairie Home Companion. Um, yeah, he, he, he had an interesting reputation, you know, as much as actors loved working with him, writers hated him. Apparently Ring Lardner has threatened him, uh, several times <laughs> because, uh, you know, because he'll, he'll, he'll look at these scripts as kind of very loose blueprints, you right. know, sometimes he'll like, he specifically for this movie, he was working with his close friend, Joan Tewksbury, and he dispatched her to Nashville just for to live there for a few months and just kind of observe people and meet people and kind of work among the scene and then just kind of take notes on what she was discovering. Yeah. And she actually wound up basing the character of Opal on herself. Although I, I don't think she's British or that silly, but, um, <laughs> but yeah. And then a lot of the characters in this movie are based on real, like recognizable country stars, you know? So obviously yes. like Barbara Jean is Loretta Lynn and you've got like Connie, who's like a little bit of Dolly Parton, a little bit of uh, Tammy Wynette. Yep. You got Porter Wagner as ha uh, uh, Haven. You know, like all these different. Actually, like this is interesting. Hmm. He acts like Porter Wagner, and I only know this because my ex-wife absolutely loves country music, so I showed her this movie, um, and uh, she pointed out that uh, uh, the character Timothy Brown plays Tommy Brown yeah. is Charlie Pride. Charlie Pride, yeah, yeah. So one I of the asked very her who few, everybody like, else was, yeah, um, because I I didn't know that world. Um, so I asked her, um, you know, are are the rest of these characters based on real uh, country music stars? And mm. uh, she said, well, he does act like Porter Wagner. His look is straight George Jones from that period. With the big mutton chop sideburns and the yeah. rhinestone suits, that's George Jones. Roy yeah. Acuff is another name I've seen. I'm not yeah. too familiar with him outside of there was an episode of the podcast. Um, uh, God, what was that called? Cocaine and rhinestones. Right, which is really worth listening to. Uh, yeah, yeah. So they're all kind of loosely based on these real people, but you know, you can see who these people are. Sure. And you know, famously, after this movie came out, the Nashville community hated this film because it felt like right. it made them look like a bunch of rubes. Uh, a, a criticism I really don't think is fair at all. I, I think he's incredibly sympathetic and, and fair to everybody here. Um, and I think people have come around on it in the Nashville community. Like, I don't <laughs> think it's quite as hated as it was. But yeah, yeah I think it hit a little close to home, you know. I, I think the real... So yeah, like we said, like, Tewksbury kind of created this blueprint with her script. Like, her diary kind of served as a blueprint. We had plot points. We had a place that every character kind of needed to end up. But other than that, uh, Altman just kind of 
let his actors loose and let them kind of build their own characters and improvise their own dialogue and find kind of their own truth in things. And it's incredible that it comes together as seamlessly as it is. And you really feel like, Oh my God, this, he really did stack like this. This is what happens when you trust people. This is what happens Mm -hmm. when you trust your actors and you just kind of let them go. It's really pretty incredible. But the, aside from the heavy improvisation, he also asked his character, his actors who were singers in the movie to write and perform their own music. Right. And for the most part, most of them did. So Ronnie Blakely, Keith Carradine, Henry Gibson, uh, 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 Alan Karen Nichols, Black. Karen Black. Yeah. This has and, got to be the most critically uh, praised film that Karen Black has ever appeared in. Um, this, this or maybe five easy pieces, but yeah, maybe, yeah that's certainly true. not the current Rob Zombie phase of her career. Right. I'm thinking of Trilogy of Terror. You know? yeah. yeah. Interestingly, we just watched Paris, Texas last weekend. Her son plays the lead in that movie, the lead oh, okay. in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Her son with uh, L.M. Kit Carson. Right. Uh, yeah. But like uh, uh, Dave Peel also wrote Lily Tomlin wrote some of her own songs. Uh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that one. And uh, Ronnie Blakely, she wrote all her songs. She also wrote one for uh, uh, Tommy Brown, right. or Timmy Brown, sorry. And uh, Keith Carradine also wrote It Don't Worry Me, which plays over the end credits kind yeah. of in, in a constant refrain. Carradine and... went on to win the Oscar for this movie, uh, yep. for, for Best Original Song for I'm Easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but shockingly, I think the song that sticks with me most is the one that Bill, Mary, and Tom sing, which turns out was written by Gary Busey. Huh. Who's not even in the movie? I had to look it up. Like he was not even an actor at this point. He he made his feature film debut in Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, which was right. filming at the same time that this movie was filming. So it came out like around the same time. Uh, but he was a country music singer until this point, and so he wrote that song for the trio of them to sing. And it's kind of been stuck in my head all day. I don't know. I, I uh, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah. I was surprised by that fact. I didn't know that about Gary Busey. Um, also fact I learned from my ex-wife. Oh, really? Uh, um, not, not, oh, the, not the Gary Busey. Busey. I oh, learned yeah. that just now. Oh, got different. It. Separate <laughs> fact I learned from my ex-wife. I'm um, awake, I promise. Uh, she remembered, she's, she's a bit older than me. Mm-hmm. Um, and she remembered when the songs from Nashville were on the radio. Yeah. But she had never seen the movie, so she had no idea that they were part of, the soundtrack, the one she remembered is the one that, um, Ronnie Blakely and, um, that Haven. the actor is Haven, uh, the character is Haven Hamilton, uh, Henry, Henry Gibson. Gibson. Yeah. Yeah. She remembered that one, the one they sang together. She remembered that one being on the radio. Uh, one oh, I wow. love you, I think is it. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 I, I, and see, that's one of the less memorable songs for me. Like, you right. know, I, I think, yeah, the ones I always think of when I look back on this movie, it's I'm easy. It's, um, it's it. Don't worry me. Don't worry me. Yeah. It's it's the 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 song the trio sings. It's uh, the the extra extra sappy one that Haven sings about like uh, not leaving his wife for the sake of the children. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just two hundred like, years is another one. Two hundred years. Yeah, they they capture such a specific voice with this. Uh, now no. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the singing because Ebert in his essay mentioned that none of these people are terrific singers, and I have to take issue with that. Like. I don't think any of these people are bad singers except for, you know, Gwen Wells, who's supposed to be a bad singer. Right. You know, like, uh, uh, I think Ronnie Blakely is incredibly convincing, I think, especially. Sure. Uh, <laughs> and for this being her first movie, it's kind of like, holy shit, why was she not like just the biggest star in the world? Like, she yeah. just came out the gate so unbelievably strong. And then she yeah. basically disappeared. She was in Nightmare on Elm Street. And then I can't think of anything else that she was in. But, uh, she did a lot of television work. I looked it up. Lots of TV. Okay. Yeah. She did lots of TV. Uh, but she has not worked since 1990. Wow. That, that's um, been kind of a recurring thing too. Cause Christina Gaines, who plays Mary also has not worked since 1991. She quit Hollywood to become a, a nurse and she works on okay. like kidney dialysis. Uh, so, and then sometimes you get people in this movie, like who weren't actors at all. My favorite story that I learned is that Dave Peel, who plays Henry Gibson's son in this, uh, is not an actor. He was Henry Gibson's guitar instructor. Oh, okay. And they they met when he was preparing for this movie, and Altman noted that Dave Peel kind of bore a resemblance to Henry Gibson, and they put him in the movie. And he's like, he's not bad. 
you know, he gets, no, he's to, not. Sing, yeah. he gets to sing a little bit. He's got a very easy mm-hmm. kind of chemistry, you know, and uh, yep. he, he's a very likable presence. Mm-hmm. So I, it's just, it's cool that Altman kind of trusts his audience. He trusts his cast mm-hmm. and he recognizes talent in unconventional ways. Right. And he also, I think he didn't audition for this, uh, for this movie. He just went to actors and said, would you like to be in this movie? I'm making about country music. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. It's like, Hey, you want to do this? And, and, uh, you know, he had some people who were kind of in his stock, yeah. you know, the, that, uh, would come back. I think Shelley Duvall has worked with him several times. Keith Carradine's worked Keith with him Carradine. several times, yeah. you know, lots of people like that. And I don't know, it's, we we kind of open the movie like introducing all these characters. I mean, we get this this blast, like we mentioned, the KTEL Records kind of yeah. advertisement, like blasting every character and song as they repeat the name of the movie over and over <laughs> again. And it's like it's such a crazy way to sort of inundate you to the movie. But you you see that and you think like, okay, this is what could happen if someone was less capable of less sure, less innovative with their sound design. This yeah. is what an Alban movie could sound like with <laughs> little less control over the helm. Exactly. And just, yes, that's the, the incredible that. thing about this technique that he uses is that you are never struggling to keep up with anyone. You're never, you're always very clear on where your attention is supposed to be focused. The noise, mm-hmm. the, the conversation, you can hear them. You can hear whole sections of them, but it's not discordant. It's not, it, it, it feels very much like you're just in the room with a bunch of people talking. Right, which shouldn't be something that's difficult to capture, but I feel like uh, uh, Altman really f- found an uh, amazing technique here. Um, and, and I agree; I think it brings you in. It makes you feel like you're a part of this group, even though, like you know, and, and and we get to see their lives intersecting like over and over, and kind of crossing each other's paths. Feels like mm-hmm. a small town sort of vibe. Um, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about some of these characters here because there's so, so many to dig into. And, uh, did you have like a favorite character or a character that you found most sympathetic or the one you kept kind of going back to? Um, well, they're all so complex. I think, uh, this time I watched it, I, I paid note to to Henry Gibson's character Mm -hmm. and the dichotomy of how, you know, and especially for a movie made during Watergate. You know, during Vietnam, um, you know, you see that character and he's coded as the establishment. And, you know, from a lifetime of from having been born in 1976 and from a lifetime of having seen media from that era, Mm -hmm. uh, immediately my brain is trained to think of him as the bad guy. Um, but as as the movie unspools over the course of two and a half hours, he just becomes more and more sympathetic, uh, you know, to the point of are we spoiling the ending? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, okay. I, I'm going to assume people have seen this 45 yeah. year old movie <laughs> um, to, you know, to the point of where he is. You notice he's the first one to, to run to help Ronnie Blakely when she's shot. Um, That's the incredible know. thing about and, that scene. You know, yeah, it, it's, yeah. It, the way that they're kind of like. I think I think you get to it's I've always thought of it as like everyone flipping on their heads, but they're not really flipping on their heads. It's just more revealing of their character at this right. moment. Like, yeah, but we'll, we'll get to that in time. But yeah. Yeah. So that that was the one, you know, this time around that really stood out for me that, um, you know, was just again, it they're all that complex. But yeah, that's I mean, the one that sticks out they managed to get a lot of complexity out of characters, even with very small scenes. I felt mm-hmm. like, uh, this time I think my heart really went out to Suline, the, uh, Gwen Wells, the, uh, the poor waitress oh, okay. who just can't carry a tune for the life of her. Uh, winds up doing a burlesque show. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. That scene just breaks my heart because like she, she's also kind of a tragic figure in that she's cursed to not really know her limitations. Right. You know, she's got these big dreams that are always going to bump up on this thing. I mean, she's got the the voice. I don't know if that's her actual singing voice or just like some kind of voice that she came up with. But it is if if so I recall the last terrible. time I watched the director's commentary. Yeah. Altman does mention that she was not as strong a singer as the rest of the cast. So they wrote that in. Oh, wow. OK. Yeah. OK. I mean, because. Yeah, I mean, she, she just manages to hit the exact wrong notes every single yeah. time 
And yeah. like the louder her voice gets, the kind of the more nasally it gets. And it's just like, oh, girl, yeah, this, <laughs> this is rough. <laughs> but like, you know, so she's always going to be bumping up into those limitations. And even when she's confronted with the reality of it, like the scene where Wade kind of finally tells her, like, look, you cannot sing. Yes. She takes it as this sort of like, you know, it's one of those millions of tabloid like or rags to riches stories that you see of like, oh, people are telling them they're no good. They're no good. But right. she's not going to listen. She's going to plow right through. But it's like, no, no, really, really. We're not. This isn't one of those moments. I'm sorry. This right. is one of the other moments where, you which, you know, so it's really ties into the theme of celebrity in this movie, too, because, you know, it's it, she doesn't necessarily want to be a singer. She wants to be a country Western star. Yeah, I believe that's the actual dialogue. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. so. I think, you know, she, uh, she, she worships Barbara Jean who right. is like actually a singer, but she's also like a level of, of celebrity and sort of Nashville royalty and the way people treat her. But she, yeah, her, her storyline made me very sad. And yeah, like you said, there's the burlesque scene where she goes out, she sings this room full of men roundly boos her. And then she has to go out and make herself vulnerable again yeah. You know, she has to go out to these men who just like kind of shredded her and then she has to get naked in front of them. And it's just like, oh, this yeah, poor girl. It's, it's tragic. Uh, yeah. And speaking of the celebrity thing, the other character I found myself kind of gravitating towards this time was Tom uh, and not necessarily oh. for the good reasons. And that's because mm. I, I and I'm going to pose this question. I'm curious what you think. I almost wonder <laughs> if Tom is too broadly drawn or too mm. overtly like I, I read him as almost like evil in his in his disregard for other people. I think it's a less subtle version of what we were talking about with uh, Henry Gibson's character of Haven, um, where you know, as this like freewheeling hippie rock and roll guy, he's you know representing free love and peace. You know, his we're introduced to him uh, yelling at uh, the soldier character for having served in Vietnam, right? Um, and um, so I think it is a bit too broadly drawn in, you know, trying to point out the dark side of youth culture of the time. You know, maybe I, there's a maybe there's something um, sinister about uh, free love and drugs and having a good time all the time, you know? Yeah, you uh, can kind of yeah. see that that shoe dropping with him a little bit because he's. Yeah he's not just like about free love. He's about being callously cruel yes. to people. He's about using people like uh, multiple times in the movie. He wakes up next to a, a woman in bed. They like uh, the first time he wakes up next to Opal, he just kind of like almost punches her to get her out of bed. He like, yeah. punch, like jabs her in the shoulder really hard. And yeah. then he immediately gets on the phone and starts scheduling his next jump off, like right in front of her. Like, mm -hmm. And he pulls that same move again at the end of the movie with, with, with Lily Tomlin. Tomlin. He, he calls his his back home girlfriend <laughs> and invites her out to Nashville. Yeah, yeah. And so you In get the, the yeah, and you get the yeah. double kind of thing. Like he's using this woman on the phone, and he's also attempting to use Lily Tomlin. Now Ebert in his essay, he mentioned that scene specifically. He said he felt like T Tomlin's character was being oblivious. I don't, I don't think I buy that she was being no oblivious i think no, i don't think so either i think she came into this situation i think she's a more savvy character than tom thinks or than uh than maybe like the movie hints at too oh, I, I think i i think so because she's also i think there's also a realization that you know <clears throat> she's married you know to uh a man who's unable or unwilling to understand uh the situation that she's in with her children right um you know um, and you know, there seems to be, a um, you know, she knows what this is, you know, she knows it's not, she's, which I think is reflected in the dialogue when he, she's teaching him sign language. Yeah. And he asks, uh, her to sign, I love you, but she instead signs, I'm happy I met you. I think that's so telling And she's very aware of what's going on here. You know, it is. Yeah. It's yeah. very telling. Also telling that like Tom so roundly rejects every other time someone tries to say they love him. Like Mary yes. tells it to him and he pretends to be asleep. His girlfriend mm -hmm. tells it to him. He hangs up the phone. Right. So it is kind of an unusual moment of clarity from him. But the moment oh. we meet Lily Tomlin in this movie, 
she's in gospel robes, like singing right. with this choir, and she's the only one in that booth who can't carry a tune. And we're given kind of the sense that she got this gig and she's getting to go in there and do this recording because her husband's like a big wheel lawyer. And yes. that and so there's there's a code, it's almost coded that she's silly or maybe a little bit delusional, you know, but then you just realize that this is she's not she's not worried about stardom she's not she wanted to have some fun with her choir you know she felt like singing with her friends in church and her life is her kids her life is her her life is her own thing you know and uh i think that's such an incredibly powerful moment that she gets up gets dressed and then just like leaves tom there not even slamming the door not giving him the satisfaction of that she gives him a nice kiss. They leave on good terms, and then he'll mm-hmm. never see her, like she'll never see him again. Right. It's it's a yeah. it's a really good moment. Um, you know, and I think the movie could have gone a little more in depth, like uh, with the Tommy Brown character, uh, because I thought that was a very interesting dynamic. There are very few people of color in this movie, yeah, which is unusual if you you know know the South and you know Nashville. Like you know that's that's mm-hmm. not really the demographics that are there. So it, it was interesting. Like I wanted there to are, uh, historically for the past 45 years, this is changing. Yeah. But historically there have been very few people of color in country Western music. It's true. Uh, they, yeah. You know, at the time it was Charlie pride and Freddie Fender. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, that is, that is starting to change now in 2020, Hootie, um, one of the biggest country stars in the world. It's crazy to me. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I think there's something like I, I wanted to learn a little bit more about that dynamic because everyone yeah. does seem to accept him and like him, mm-hmm. but they do keep him at an arm's length. Right. Like doesn't at one point like even uh, 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 Barbara Jean at one point calls him like her beautiful big black butterfly or something like yes. that. Like, and he just like, kind of takes it in stride. He takes it in stride, um, you know, and yeah. I, I, I think I wanted a little bit more of like, OK, how did he get to this point? place like how does he feel about this because he uh, you know you have to imagine a lot of his audience you know and we get one interaction with uh wade the cook where he's drunk and heckling him you know and and uh uh uh, calling him out and saying that like you know he's he's kind of implying that he's lost the respect of the black community because he decides to do this country music thing so i know you're right because there is that there's that scene uh, during that early scene with uh, the vehicle, the, the vehicle pileup where yeah. you're sort of introduced to everybody through the traffic jam. Um, there's that great scene on the bus where Geraldine Chaplin is trying to interview him and she's trying to explain to black Southerners about the race relations in the South in the 1960s, right. 1970s. Yeah. It's, um, and, um, Right. That's um, and I remember this the first time I ever saw this movie because we're introduced to his wife in that scene, but not him necessarily. Right. And this is the difference between 1975 and 1994. Um, you know, his wife is is black mm-hmm. and she says, oh, Mrs. Brown. And it's supposed to be this shocking moment. I didn't get the implication was supposed to be that Tommy Brown is black. I thought the implication was that he is a white man married to a black woman. Um, yeah. Or, or that she, yeah. like we, if I understood that scene, right, she doesn't seem to know who Tommy Brown actually is. Exactly. Or like she knows the name, but she, she actually was not um, familiar that she was talking to Tommy Brown about Tommy Brown. Right, and then that right. kind of revelation, they're like, Oh, this is his wife. And then she kind of yeah. puts it together from there. Right. Which, again, is just kind of revealing the casual racism there, too. Uh, And Geraldine Chaplin, a lot of fun in this role, but she makes me want to talk a little bit about the silly characters. Like, this is a movie Mm -hmm. that can encompass some very silly characters, like uh, uh, Jeff Goldblum as Tricycle Man. Uh, We get uh, Opal. We get L.A. Joan as a silly character. L.A. Joan. Yeah, Shelley Duvall as L.A. Joan. And then Barbara Harris as Winifred, (laughs) like, is literally running through the background of this movie like a Benny Hill skit a lot of the time until she gets this unbelievably powerful moment at the end of the movie. Like, the last person in the world you'd expect to deliver this, like, stunning final moment of his film is this like mm-hmm. wacky boomer cartoon strip come to life of like her and her husband, like chasing each other around Nashville. And she looks all bedraggled yeah. and crazy. 
so there's room. I do love, I, okay. No, that's a genuinely funny moment when she's singing at the, at the demolition derby and nobody can hear her. Yeah. Um, <laughs> also pointed too, like they have one, uh, uh, looked like an Asian American woman singing, uh, and again, completely drowned out by the sound of the cars and everything like that, which I think yeah. I, I kind of took as like, okay, yeah, this is this is why you don't. The, the, it it seemed exclusionary as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. But these, it's pretty amazing. It shows it's a real compliment to Alban's control of his film and control of the tone that you can have these wacky characters kind of running around in the background, and smartly he knows. He knows when to lay off on them. He knows when to use them and he knows when to lay off. So you'll notice like the big scene at the end, the assassination, the 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 big final concert at the Parthenon, uh, all the characters are there. Everybody in the movie is there. Yeah. But the moment the bullets are fired, Tricycle Man disappears from the movie. L.A. Joan disappears from the movie. Opal disappears yeah. from the movie. Like they are gone. We don't, we don't get any kind of resolution. We don't see where they go. And they're, they're kind of like out of mind because it's like the frivolities are suddenly just kind of kicked out by this, yeah. this, this harsh reality. And I think it, it, it really helps emphasize that like, okay, yeah, Alban knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly when to use them and, uh, and, and when not to, you know? <clears throat> yeah. And yeah, I just, I think it, it works so unbelievably well. And then we are treated to just kind of a lot of concert sequences. You know, this is really just kind of following characters from event to event. We go to the Opryland. We go to a big picnic. We go to the big concert at the end. Uh, the most of the time, they're just these uh, big grand groups. old Opry. And then yeah. there's like there's like scenes that are just in like honky tonks and bars. And I have not been to Nashville, but I have talked with people who have been to Nashville, and yeah. they've told me that it really is that. It's just every place has an open mic because everybody wants to be, you know, it's like open mic improv in LA. You yeah. Know, it's, everybody's it's, in Nashville to be a singer songwriter. So there are open mics all over town. Exactly. Yeah. This is, and, and this was fairly recent to Nashville. If I understand it, like this kind of country music boom of the seventies that made Nashville kind mm. of the heart of this scene it was still a fairly new thing. So people were flocking to it. You right. get all these interesting people. We do have this um, interesting political commentary, like literally political commentary, like running throughout the movie from this unseen politician who's driving around in a van with loudspeakers named Hal Philip Walker. Like, How uncomfortable does that feel post-Trump? It's so uncomfortable. Oh, my God. Like, Thank you. We don't even really – we don't learn – too much about Walker and what he stands for. There is kind of a ominous vibe from him. I think maybe I'm just getting an ominous vibe from anyone who drives around in a van with a loudspeaker, like ranting yep. all day to the degree <laughs> that I was kind of surprised to learn that this was a figure within the world of this movie that was being taken seriously as a presidential candidate. Right. And who actually was like gaining momentum, you know, but, and and in a uh, in kind of a funny nod, uh, in Ocean Stiggs, he is the president. Oh no, um, kidding! Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> and so he, he, what is it? What is his party? The Revolutionist Party or the the uh, Recreationist Party? Reform? Something like no. that. Yeah, he's like a he's like a, a replacement party. Replacement, the replacement party. party. Thank you, yeah. thank you. You know, mm -hmm. so he's kind of painted as sort of a fringe, like third party candidate, but he's gaining momentum to the degree that he has. Michael Murphy playing this sort of uh, uh, hatchet man who's right. traveling through the movie, like, like tempting people in all these really interesting ways, like in corrupting people, like he he's promising Haven, like a shot at the governorship. He's promising all this television exposure. He's, he's a real smooth operator. And then when things go yeah. down, he just kind of Doesn't extricates he, he promises, himself. Um, Bill, Mary and Tom, that they'll be the only rock uh, act on the, on this nationally televised country music yeah. concert. So they'll have a whole new audience. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's a yeah. real smooth talker. And then after the shots are fired and everything's settling down, he like, it, it's not like a frantic scramble to get out. And I'm not saying my Murphy doesn't play it. Like he's a heartless man. Who's like, you know, like uh completely unmoved by the situation, but he does, sort of look for an opportunity to remove himself, you know? And, uh, uh, again, like this final moment where the shots are fired and you really get to see what everyone is made of. 
uh, you get to really see like, that's who he is. And you get some surprising yeah. turns too. Like that's the last time we see Tom, like the unrepentant, like rock star asshole. The last time we get to see him is trying to carry Barbara Jean to safety. Like, yeah. And the other people carrying him are like, who is it? It's also Barnett. Who's like a complete controlling mm -hmm. piece of shit. The entire movie. Yeah. But they're all still right there. They're the first ones there. And then, of course, Haven, who that that I think that was the moment when I saw this movie for the first time. And I'm like, holy shit, this really is like this. This really this really blew my mind. You know, the fact that yeah. he takes a bullet in the arm, he sees his uh, uh, co-star getting shot down and he does not miss a beat. He does it. He immediately his his only instinct is to protect the crowd and to keep things right. calm and to preserve this idea that he has of what Nashville is. Right. You know, this is not Dallas. This is not Dallas. What a great line. This is not Dallas. Yeah. This is Nashville. We don't let that happen here. And right. like it, it's within minutes, maybe less than 60 seconds before another song is going again. And mm -hmm. another 60 seconds after that, people are happy and smiling and, and, and allowing themselves to, to heal from this and push past it and to not let it take root and to not let it define this day or this city or this moment. Mm -hmm. And that was Haven that was kind of orchestrating that, you know? So as much yeah. as swagger and goofiness and like pomposity that he has, there is a very real part of him that is the beating heart of Nashville. And he takes it seriously as a responsibility. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's an incredibly revealing moment. Um, mm -hmm. Well, let me see what else I got here. There's so much to encompass in this film. It just kind of jumps all around. I but... just want to circle back to the political candidate for a minute. Yeah, please. Again, the difference between 1994 and 2021 was when I first watched this, he reminded me of Ross Perot because Ross Perot was current at the time. Yeah. And Ross Perot was a third party candidate who said these things that people seemed to appreciate uh, above typical pr uh, political rhetoric. Um, <laughs> I, I remember very distinctly he would purchase yes. like 30, 45 minute TV spots in prime time yes. where he would just talk and to you. And would show charts on TV. Oh, those pissed me off. Explaining how the national debt worked. Yeah. Oh, oh God. <laughs> I was so mad because I was like uh, 10 or 11 years old. I'm just like, I just want to watch fucking Fresh Prince. Just let me watch TV. Like, what are you doing? Like, I don't want to watch this weird shriveled old man with his high voice, like talking about taxes. Like, I don't I don't right. care. You know, so, yeah, I remember that but very again, distinctly. Now, now all I can hear is Trump. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's that rhetoric, um, you know, that that populist idea that, you know, you're better than the politicians. Um, yeah, yeah yeah does christmas smell like oranges to you like that's his platform yeah, that he's running on that. it's like that means nothing it's meaningless it's all just a lot of right. like pablum about hard work and and you know stuff like that but it doesn't really right coalesce the lawyers are ruining the country and yeah. yeah real generalized statements and he's not really making mm -hmm. any kind of like claim or progress you know so that's that's yeah. a fascinating like running thread you know so it's it's kind of amazing that it manages to have all these different things going on and seemingly none of them got the same. Like nothing's really being forced down your throat at any point yeah. in this movie because it just un unrolls so organically and just lets you kind of live in it and linger in it. Which is the same mm -hmm. thing. Like I love that they let us watch these musical numbers. Like it's not just kind of like a medley or anything. Most of the time we're watching these musical numbers being performed from yeah. start to finish. And we're getting a sense of who these people are as performers in addition to who they are as the people we've gotten to know. And and we just get to kind of live in it and bask in the music and kind of enjoy what they're doing, you know? I was talking about Karen Black's performance. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. She's, um, <clears throat> yeah, she does the thing where she's like playing with the um, the column on stage. Oh, yeah. And uh, she's signing autographs for, for kids. And it's, you know, it's again just a, a look at how great Altman is at at using actors. Like all these performances are kind of in character for the yeah. actors, uh, for the characters. It's, um, <clears throat> you know, there are, there are musicals where it's kind of like you see the actor take off their acting hat and put on their singing hat. Um, right. This is kind of seamless, you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, 
yeah, I want to talk a little bit about Ronnie Blakely too. We mentioned her already, oh, but yeah. uh, the the scene where she's performing in the park and she has her kind of breakdown where she sort of can't oh, yeah. stop rambling. Like, I yeah. thought that was a really interesting performance choice. And when you compare it to the, her singing, too, like into the songs that she wrote, sure. think about how rich in weird details those songs are. You know, the 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 tape deck and the tractor and, like, the song about the hard-driving cowboy man. Like, she goes on yeah. and on talking about their evening. And, like, he takes me home and puts me to bed. Like, like there's so many mm-hmm. kind of unnecessary details and you kind of see the same thought process coming through in the song. And that's why I think it was such a strong choice to have the actors write their own songs in addition to improvising this dialogue, you know, because they yeah. really get to take ownership of who these characters are. Right. Um, right. And it's 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 so accurate to country music of the time. Um, you know, there, there aren't – because this is a couple of years before – uh, the outlaw country movement. Yeah. So they're all very patriot. Well, you know, like uh, Henry Gibson has the, the patriotic song that starts off the, the movie and yeah. <laughs> they're all kind of like religiously tinged. Um, you know, like uh, Tim Brown sings the song about the bluebird of happiness. Right. You know, um, it's, it, they are really accurate to it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you're right. Like we would, we would go a little deeper. Like as we got into the '80s, into stuff like you know Chris Christopherson and Johnny Cash, and and you know they would, right, yeah. they would kind of branch off from this super sappy stuff. And I think modern country has come right back around, and it's basically just kind of top forty stuff at this point. But it's still yeah. reflecting those same kind of values. You know, it's all mm-hmm. patriotism and and real America and and you know loving God and loving country and all that stuff. Yep. And so it's interesting to see, like, this is the this is the '70s variety show version of that, you know. Yes. Like, I, I, you can't help but see those jumpsuits and those like rhinestones. Oh my god, and... yeah, the Mentrell sisters, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I yeah. mean, you just you, you can't you can't escape it. Like, it, it's yeah. it's so corny, and it's really it's similar to what we're doing now, just maybe with a few slightly fewer uh, layers of corniness. Um, right. You know, I think I have gotten a to the, about the end of my notes. I mean, there's really so much to encompass in this movie. Like it's a, it's, it's a longer movie. It's like close to three hours, but it's, it goes by like nothing, you know, because it's so propulsively entertaining. Like it almost feels like a hangout movie sometimes kind of like Richard Linklater would do later, but, uh, but it's more propulsive than that. It's more, it's got more in its mind than that. A lot of a lot of this period Altman feels like that. McCabe and Mrs. Miller's kind of a hangout for most of it. Yeah. Um, uh, Nash the, is definitely that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So yeah, I guess there was some some Linklater influence there too. Oh my god, absolutely. Yeah, you really mm. can't like pretty much any kind of smart dialogue driven adult drama of, of, uh, right. since 1975, I think owes a little bit to Nashville. I think so. Uh, well, thank uh, you so did much. Did not do well oh, at yeah. the Oscars. Did not do well at the Oscars. Got one. Uh, it was right. nominated Best for, original song. Well, it was nominated for picture, correct? Or was it not? It was nominated for picture. It lost to one flew over the cuckoo's nest, which hard year is not a bad choice that year. Yeah. Hard year, um, hard year. And then I know, uh, both Ronnie Blakely and Lily Tomlin got Oscar nominees for their film debuts, both of them. Uh, mm-hmm. Lily Tomlin, I did not realize, debuted with this movie. Uh, yeah. But man, she's she's just a treasure, and I hope she lives forever. Um, she had been doing she had been doing comedy at that at this point, right? Yeah, she was a uh, she was uh, uh, a prominent stage actress and a stand up comedian. Uh, okay. So like, yeah. she wasn't untested or anything like that. But she was thirty six right. and doing her first movie at this time. Uh, and just knocks it out of the park. I was looking at the Golden Globe nominations from this year, and six out of or four out of the six supporting actress nominations were from this movie that year. It was. Yeah, I believe uh, Nashville still holds the record for Golden Globe nominations. No kidding. Um, oh man, yeah, yeah. that I, that wouldn't surprise me at all because we had Barbara Harris and Geraldine Chaplin got nominations in that category as well, uh, and then Henry Gibson, of course, was nominated. And uh, yeah, yeah. So it didn't yeah, do as I'm, well at the Oscars, I'm, but it was I'm a tough year. At- by the way, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the uh, uh, nominations for Best Picture. Oh, yeah. What do we have that year? year? Uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Barry Lyndon, 
Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, and Nashville. I believe they're all on Ebert's oh list. Oh my god. That might be the strongest Oscar year ever. Like that has a real claim. Like every one of those movies yeah. is a banger and I I couldn't like Exactly. Two of them are like Nashville and Jaws would both be like top five favorite movies for me. Sure. So like that's that's an impossible choice. Like uh, you can't even be too mad about it. Yeah. But no, I would definitely can. say, um, yeah, if people have not discovered this movie yet, I think uh, absolutely track it down. It's so rich. There's just so much to dig into, so much to discuss, so much to think about and look back on. And it's also, it just feels like an experience, you know, like in, in a yeah. low key kind of way, it is this, it's a very real kind of connecting cinematic experience. And I find it r such a beautiful, wonderful movie. Yes. Agreed. Well, thank you so, so much again for being here and telling us uh, and talking about Nashville. Great. Um, where Love can people, uh, where can people find your stuff? Okay. Uh, you can check out my uh, podcast. That's off the cuffs plural oh excuse me uh, i think is, i said off the cuff at the beginning my bad that's fine that's actually a sports podcast and they oh. get emails for us sometimes and i'm really sorry about that um, <laughs> uh off the cuffs that's right uh it is a sexuality podcast so uh please be 18 if you're going to be listening to it um that leaves me out and um i am on twitter at a minimus max m without the us Fantastic. Well, thank you so much again. We've really appreciated Quite you welcome. having you here. Uh, you'll, you can find us at Rogers List Pod on Gmail, on Twitter, at Instagram, all those other places. Toss us a review on iTunes if you get a moment. Five-star review goes a long way to help getting us noticed. Uh, and be sure to tune in next week because, oh my God, we have another big, beefy movie to talk about. And it is going to be the one and only PTA movie on this list, 1999's Magnolia. The wow. only Paul Thomas Anderson movie I liked. I mean, I have a bad habit of speculating what movies Ebert would have put on this list had he lived a few years longer. But I, I, I do wonder, I do think there would be another one on the list by this point. Oh, there will be um, blood. Probably there will be blood. Boogie nights would, I, I think uh, he was uh, pretty enthusiastic. Oh, about. that's true. It doesn't, didn't have to be contemporary to the year he was writing. That's true. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. He could have circled back to boogie nights. Yeah. Most definitely. But um, we're going to be talking about Magnolia next week. It's another favorite of mine. I'm excited to get into it. Uh, so thank you good. so much, everybody, for listening. And we will see you next time. Good night. It's not my way to love you just when no one's looking. It's not my way to take your hand if I'm not sure. It's not my way to let you see what's going on inside of me. When it's love, you won't be needing, you're not free Please stop pulling at my sleeve if you're just playing If you won't take the things you make me want to give I never cared too much for games And this one's driving me insane You're not half as free to wander as you claim but I'm easy, yeah, I'm easy. Give the word, I'll play your game, as though that's how it ought to be, because I'm easy.